0: Be Real is brought to you by Uncharted. Gordon Ramsay laces up his boots, grabs his knives, and buckles up as he hits the road in a new season of National Geographic's Gordon Ramsay Uncharted. The multi Michelin star chef and Ironman athlete adventures across the globe in a relentless pursuit of culinary inspiration through exhilarating adventures. This season, Ramsay feasts his way through Tasmania, South Africa, Indonesia, Louisiana, Norway, India, and Guyana venturing even more off the grid and off-recipe to explore global cuisines. This is Gordon Ramsay as you've never seen him before. Gordon Ramsay Uncharted airs Sundays at 10-9 Central beginning June 7th, and the first season is currently available on Disney+. The series is for your consideration for outstanding structured reality program and outstanding host for a reality or competition program. For more information, visit natgeo.com FYC. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to Be Real. It's a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre-hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. My name's Chance Solem pfeiffer And I'm Noah Ballard. It's obviously been an extremely sad, frightening, infuriating week. I know that Noah and I both feel a little weird even doing this show today, but for sanity's sake, everybody needs to divert for an hour or two. I hope you'll allow us that, and then we can go back to supporting and fighting for the cause of justice in this country, in this world, however we can. But against all odds, we're here to talk about Val Kilmer.
1: Yeah, if I could think of a least, the, the least zeitgeisty actor to reappraise <laughs> uh, in this moment right now. I mean, it seemed zeitgeisty when we picked the topic, uh, which was, well, I mean, he had a memoir come out and a pretty revealing New York Times Magazine piece about like what 60-year-old Val Kilmer's doing now post being sort of vaguely publicly sick. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went in, you know, Head first into watching as many we basically bullied each other into watching as many Val Kilmer movies as we possibly could uh,
0: yeah we picked five like official titles to review but there's also a handful of very important ones we've already reviewed and then like yeah you and I were just texting about like I'm gonna watch Batman Forever tonight are you gonna watch that <laughs> so I think we've each watched like 11 or something in the last three weeks
1: yeah it's like it's tonight gonna be the night that I watch at first sight Was it? No, I never got to at first sight, but I did get to Red Planet.
0: Incredible. Red Planet's
1: Um, free on HBO, which is.
0: So we're basically going to trace Val's uh, entire career from the mid 80s to the present, making some important pit stops along the way. Uh, But I want to tell you first that you're listening to a show on the Playlist Podcast Network, which we hope you will subscribe to wherever you get your shows, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere else. There are some other great shows on this network, like The Fourth Wall, The Discourse, uh, The Deep Focus Podcast. So like and subscribe. Leave us a nice comment. We really appreciate it.
1: Turning back to Valentine (laughs) Edward Gilmer. (laughs) Um, Born December 31, 1959.
0: Los Angeles, California.
1: No, what? Oh yeah, he did. He was born there. That's fucking. But then right. he started like driving around, and he describes. So the other piece of this too is that like he's got this memoir out. So I listened to, I'd say fifty percent generously of the memoir, which it should be noted, required for some reason the use of three voice actors. Right. Um, but yeah. So, I feel like I've definitely gotten insights into his formative years, at least in his own words.
0: The man contains multitudes. Um, what can we say at the front? I mean, you uh, you know Val Kilmer audience from movies like Tombstone Heat, Top Gun, The Doors, many of which we're going to talk about today. He went from being um, kind of 80s heartthrob to really interesting 90s character actor to... I think sort of a a perpetually like interesting downslide, which we also want to unpack. Like basically, from the peak of his stardom, downward. Um,
1: so should we start at the beginning? Let's start at the beginning. Uh, well, we can't start at the true beginning because we covered it already.
0: We have covered Top Secret, um, which is a Zaz movie from 1984. Zaz um, beating
1: Zucker, Abrams, Zucker—the guys who brought you *Airplane!* and the *Naked Gun* series.
0: Indeed, you really like that. You like that movie a lot, I recall.
1: That movie is incredible because it's in like the key of the Zaz creators, but it like doesn't quite know what genre it is, and it like almost mm-hmm. goes into sort of like absurdist surrealism at some points, which <laughs> right. is just like kind of funny to watch. Uh, but yeah, I do really like that movie, though I have to say that. It's a weird start for Kilmer Almost playing like an Elvis type role
0: Sure But he is I think it is useful in a couple ways In the sense of He's really like in on the spoof And that's like something you'll see Come up throughout his career Like when there is comedy to be done He is a very like thinky man So he like really understands the tropes And he wants to subvert them And he's quite capable of that But you, when we did the top secret episode, said the the thing about Val that I can't get out of my head is that for a leading man, he really doesn't he's not a charming actor. And that was the lens through which I watched all of these movies. Because I think it's a great point.
1: I would argue that my thesis stands throughout the career of Val Kilmer.
0: Yes. And I would argue
1: he really didn't become charming until maybe the mid two thousands. When he then vanished to obscurity.
0: Right, right. But we're going to... So, anything else to say about Top Secret or should we jump to Real Genius?
1: Let's get into Real Genius.
0: So, 85, Real Genius, his second movie. This is kind of actually a meteoric rise. The, real quick, the 12 films that he makes from 84 to 95 are Top Secret, Real Genius, Top Gun, Willow... Kill Me Again, The Doors, Thunderheart, Real McCoy, Tombstone, True Romance, Batman Forever, and Heat. Like there are some. That's quite a batting average to just start on.
1: It's just a. It's a great resume too. There's not that many like overt bombs in there.
0: No. Um, So Real Genius is a Martha Coolidge comedy from 1985. You would know her from making movies like Valley Girl and Rambling Rose. Val Kilmer plays. A science prodigy who is now sort of like a rebelling ne'er do well at a like a private science institute run by '80s uh, smarmy villain William Atherton, <laughs> and this new boy, Mitch Taylor, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like wins a science fair, and Atherton's like, "You're gonna be our youngest." Like uh how do you feel
1: about yeah. your your father and your father and your mother being stuck in Nakatobi Plaza?
0: <laughs> You're gonna be our youngest amateur physicist yet, son. And so he goes to this ridiculous campus and meets Val Kilmer's Chris Knight, who's just like, This is all nonsense. Like don't don't buy into this. And then they sort of help each other make this uh incredible like laser technology that is somehow amplified by liquid nitrogen there's some great kind of like um you know science fair nonsense in this movie that me knowing nothing i was all in on
1: it's funny too in the memoir he references this movie as a project that he almost got fired off of because he became so sort of uh he wasn't communicating well with director Martha Coolidge so much so that he approached Brian Grazer and was just like, this person doesn't know what funny is. Like the funny is what I'm doing, not what she's telling me to do. (laughs) Oh no. So how much of that is true? But it's pretty obvious too, that there maybe is some discord between how the camera's moving in this one. And then what Val Kilmer is actually doing, which Mm -hmm. is, it kind of works to the effect of, being funny, but it almost sort of looks like lo-fi, like in some moments, like especially when Mitch comes into the room he's sharing at the beginning and there's that like um, proto-drone like flying around the room and like Val Kilmer's also sort of flying around the room directing it. It's pretty funny. What kind of a place is this? Hi. Would you be prepared if gravity reversed itself? I, well, I... The only thing I can't figure out is how to keep the change in my pockets. I've got it. Nudity.
0: I was here for a second this morning. You didn't straighten up the place, did you? No.
1: Good. Because all my filth is in alphabetical order. This, for example, was under H for toy. What is it? This? It's a penis stretcher. You want to try it? No. I'm kidding. It's yet another in a long series of diversions in an attempt to avoid responsibility.
0: I, uh, dropped off my luggage, and now all my bags are emptied. You see, Mitch, I used to be you. And, uh, lately I've been missing me, so I asked Hathaway if I could
1: room with me again, and he said, sure. So I put all your stuff away in the bottom drawer there, shirts, pants, shoes. I had a little trouble with the sports jacket, so I threw it out. Duck!
0: Nice reflexes. I'm Chris Knight. I think this is our first opportunity to bring up with the fact that part of what makes him so interesting is that uh, by all rights, including his own, he could be a very difficult person to work with. Um,
1: I think he's s- always been and like in every case is a difficult person to work with.
0: So when it works, it feels like a small miracle sometimes. And when it doesn't, it creates either really interesting tension or else he's just kind of off the rails with his with his method acting. And that's another part of this we have to talk about. If you don't know, Val Kilmer is like a committed method actor, not in that sort of like I'm going to wear a civil war waistcoat to pretend I'm Butcher Bill like Daniel Day-Lewis does, but he believes in his mind's eye that he like understands the lives of these characters. There's a great Chuck Klosterman profile that I love of him from the mid 2000s where he's talking about how he understands Doc Holiday's life better than Doc Holiday did because that's his job. And Klosterman's like, "Wait, so you think that you know what it's like to kill someone as much as Doc Holiday did?" And Val says, "No, no, no, you misunderstand me. I know what it feels like more because it's my job to know." <laughs> Which is <laughs> incredible.
1: That is pretty incredible. Yeah, well, he's famously like from the Juilliard School of Acting, but it's interesting too. Like, he is both a self described ham, but he's also, yeah, this like serious method actor seemingly from the get go of his career. But he also rejects the kind of like structured pretension that goes along with how Juilliard was trying to teach them all to act, which is very strange. Like he, re- he like relates it. I don't know how much bullshit this actually is, but he'll like, he thinks it's all about love and empathy and like really like embracing people. It's not about like, st- like studying or structure or repetition or anything like that.
0: Which is a great line of biography to read into this specific movie where he's like a 21-year-old genius right. who's just like, if you would just abide by the rules of the school, you would be William Atherton's favorite boy. But he insists on, you know, clowning around.
1: For sure. But it also feels like if you would just, like, do some more coverage Val Kilmer and stop, like, flying around the set, it would be easier to understand this movie at certain places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Like Um, it almost—he's bringing that sort of slacker vibe not only to the character but also to the performance. I would say,
0: right? That's true. There's that Um, great
1: scene with the ice that I think is one of the more intriguing set pieces that there are here, Um, and and really sort of
0: freeze the dormitory hallway.
1: Yeah, they release some sort of gas that like goes from gas to solid immediately, or no, yeah, it goes from solid to gas immediately, and it's like dry ice. And they're all skating on it and having a great time. And it's like a pretty long couple of takes, which is interesting. And then there's some like wink, wink, nudge, nudge 1985 special effects, and it sort of evaporates. And but it right. looks good, like the effect works, it does, and it allows like people like Val Kilmer to be like you know, to do their thing or the big fucking popcorn thing at the end in the house. Incredible.
0: Yeah. It it lets these
1: characters like be in a bouncy house almost.
0: For sure. He is really good at selling banter when the banter aggrandizes his character. Like when Martha Coolidge is like, okay, you're the star of this scene. And the whole point of this scene is your rebellion. Um, against the William Atherton character He's great And there is almost sort of like Slightly toned down Like Zazzisms To this movie too Where um, You know Atherton's like I'm only saying this because I care But like you've got to get it together I'm going to kick you out of my school And Kilmer goes I'm only saying this because I care But there are a lot of decaffeinated brands on the market that taste just as good As the real thing And <laughs> Atherton goes I'm not kidding Chris And Chris goes Neither am I <laughs> <laughs> It's great. He, has he loves a lot to sell some of,
1: rebellious bullshit. There's a lot of fun lines in this movie like that. Uh, and I think it shows off that Val can do the acrobatics both physically and verbally. Totally. Which is a cool trick. But you didn't... I guess I'm not getting the sense from you that you found this movie to be incoherent. Whereas I, at moments, found this movie to be incoherent.
0: Oh, um... Well I think it's so preposterous that like the incoherence like didn't didn't matter to me that much. It it sort of felt like a joke on your private school like Revenge of the Nerds right. style movie. And in fact one of the things I really liked about it and I like this about most Martha Coolidge movies is that How good-hearted it is is almost shocking to me because I'm expecting that these sort of like bullied, embittered people will, you know, turn predatory and terrible against each other. And the movie actually ends up being like a light comedic critique of the military-industrial complex that ends up with like the villain's greatest punishment being neck deep in popcorn. In a house that
1: he's like been remodeling,
0: (laughs) and he just doesn't like dogs. That's how you know he's bad. He just keeps telling (laughs) this dog to go away. That's a good bit though. I liked how esoteric it was. Um, but it's not especially coherent if you want to continue that line of
1: thought. I just think it never quite decides like how magical it is because there's like something sure. sort of Goonies like about the guy like living in the closet. And then there's like that, you totally. know, Indiana Jones 2 contraption that like get, allows him to travel underneath the school Um <laughs> But yeah, so like, and then the ice thing was a little silly, but then it goes for like kind of deeper, almost improvisational comedy, like with Val Kilmer sort of losing his shit about realizing what the purpose of the laser that they're building is. And he kind of like just has a scene with a refrigerator where it's like four minutes of him being like, what do I do? Refrigerator. And It's like slippers. Yeah, it's and weird. it's like, what world are we in? Like, Maybe it's a tonal issue that I, I had with it.
0: Half spoofs are tricky. Um, it, yeah, it's one of these tricky half to spoofs.
1: Land. But I think it's better when it is uh, top secret. Sure. I wanted this one to have more top secret. I get that. Another line I'll
0: shout out before we move on was, you know, they have the kind of... Uh, again, I think it's making fun of the, the trope of like the all or the mostly male science school is like, we put together a co-ed pool party with like another local school. And all the guys are like, what school is it? And (laughs) Val says, well, they're from the Wanda Trussler Academy of Beauty. And one of the guys is like, what, they're beauticians? And he goes, not yet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I like the, uh, uh, when Hathaway is like, when you first started at Pacific Tech, you were well on your way to becoming another Einstein. And then you know what happened? And he says, I got a haircut.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love the, the William Atherton Hathaway character is such a funny, like who, what is that archetype? It's it's sort of like, um like sexy, stuck up Bill Nye.
1: Yeah, that's it's an interesting what, way to put it. What
0: is that supposed to be? Because he, that's the funny thing about Atherton is like, he is such a sleaze, but none of these 80s movies he's in can deny that he is also like very handsome, um, including this one.
1: For sure. He's a weird person to... I mean, I, we can crack this question open even with the first movie here. It's like, is he conventionally good-looking? Who? Val Kilmer.
0: Oh, I thought we were talking about William Atherton.
1: Um, oh, sorry.
0: I think, if anything, in these early movies, he's almost... Like hyperbolically good looking. Interesting. He doesn't look real to me. No. But is it, answer simply yes. I think he's very good looking. But, but with he, like, like a, some sort of strange edge.
1: Yes, good looking with a strange edge, maybe in the vein of like a uh, Christian Slater. But then I feel like when the camera sort of like moves in on him in, in later movies, he like. Looks more maybe like Guy Pierce than like maybe I thought from all these like middle shots of him goofing around a soundstage.
0: That's fair. That's fair.
1: Big teeth, very Guy, the strong. Teeth
0: do a lot of work,
1: and the teeth like move too. Like sometimes he'll like put in a, like a, a bottom teeth thing to make his teeth look less straight. Like he does in Wonderland, which was nuts. Right. Made me hate him.
0: <laughs> that's that's. Nineteen years from now, don't we can't talk okay, about that. Okay, let's yet. not
1: let's not get that far ahead of ourselves.
0: Let's tell people how we rate movies, and we'll rate real genius. On be real, we rate movies in two categories: a good or bad for technical quality, and a good or bad for watchability. So, what are the four possible ratings? I don't care.
1: Good, good movies are both well made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game.
0: Good-bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to re-watch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa,
1: can you hear me? Conversely, bad-good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fair like Twister or Stargate. In my regards to King Todd asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither
0: well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. Flaws in tow, I think this is a good good. I found it very charming. I think it's a fascinating use of somebody who still feels like he's a little bit in the minor leagues of what he's going to do and is maybe... Um over pondering what he should bring to a role like Chris Knight. Um, But I like this movie. Good, good.
1: I feel like you could say that about any role of his, like he's either in the minor leagues of what he's going to do, or maybe this is the best project he's ever done. Right. It's somewhere between those. Um, I think this one's a bad, good. I think it's kind of stupid and it's a little bit predictable. Uh, and then you, as we were talking about earlier, the tone doesn't quite line up, I think throughout the whole movie in like a coherent good, good way. So bad, good for me.
0: You thought it was predictable that the house would fill with popcorn? Yeah, right.
1: I think you know from the second he recoils <laughs> at popcorn at the movie th- <laughs> that, that he's going to end up in this, some sort of popcorn climax. That there's going to be too much popcorn. At some point, he was going to have to reckon with his his phobia. Chekhov's Jiffy Pop, you're saying? I'll give it to you. Can we move on? Yep. Here we go. Um,
0: Top Gun, 1986. We did not do Top Gun for this because I think as much as Val Kilmer looms very large in your perhaps sensual memories of this movie, he's only really in it uh, out of a cockpit for 12 minutes.
1: Well, according to his memoir, I'm Your Huckleberry, uh, available wherever books are sold, he, his footage was overexposed in production. So he's only in it for the few scenes because his scenes got cut. Really? And some of the appearances in it, he had to do like pickups for it without the other cast there, and they edited it in to make it look like he was there.
0: That's crazy. Tony Scott, why? Why?
1: Yeah, he does not describe the Top Gun experience that favorably, I have to tell you. He describes getting the role as a disappointment.
0: That's funny. Um, rewatching clips, though, to talk about it briefly. I oh, think the, so thing good. I, the thing I admire most about Val is that he's trying to outshark Tom Cruise. And the list of people who've ever tried to do that is incredibly short because Tom Cruise doesn't let them. And the list of people who have successfully outsharked Tom Cruise at Tom Cruise's own game is one, and it's fucking Val Kilmer. His grin is bigger, his tan is tanner. He's more arrogant than Maverick. Um, it's a totally like unprecedented performance, and it goes down to that thing where like Cruise is like always kind of grinning at people, where it's like, Tom, are you gonna like do something to that person's <laughs> face? Like, what's your plan? Are you gonna do something? And Val literalizes that in that scene where he just bites
1: <laughs> yeah he just snaps his gum at him
0: incredible Hello, the hard deck does not count Hard deck my ass we nailed that son of a bitch ha! you guys really are cowboys what's your problem Kazansky?
1: you're everyone's problem that's because every time you go up in the air you're unsafe i don't like you because you're dangerous that's right nice man
0: i am dangerous
1: This is a good example of what we can call competitive acting, which I find so funny.
0: Oh my God. He's never met a stare down. He didn't try to win.
1: Absolutely. And it's, it's never been truer. I mean, in some of these later performances too, uh, like, but I think he's really good when he does have that person to literally snap at sometimes. Like his best roles are against Robert Downey Jr. Uh, you know, against more famous people in Batman Forever. Noah, are you calling Batman Forever a good movie? I don't know. We haven't watched it. Um
0: He 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 definitely accepts a challenge from Michael Bean in Tombstone and then shoots yeah, him through the movie. Yeah, that's the forehead. thing, like
1: it, but Tombstone isn't about him. He's like in the posse. Mm-hmm. I think he's but I mean, a lot of movies I think mistake whatever thing he has for like having the ability to to carry a movie or like an action movie. Maybe such as our next movie, Willow? Mm
0: -hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is 1988. This is... It's the year I was born. Oh, my. This is Ron Howard on the come-up. He's made six movies by this point, Night Shift, Splash, but he's never made a sprawling original fantasy epic with a story by george lucas so it's a real Well, that's the
1: thing it's a lot of george lucas and ilm industrial light and magic doing all the effects so like this is from the team that is just coming off of star wars
0: just coming off of like the ewok adventures yeah
1: (laughs) they're feeling like very squirrely and it definitely i mean the ewok team definitely did put together willow like they took the note of, like, this Star Wars movie feels like a children's film. And then they're like, maybe we should make a children's film.
0: And put Warwick Davis at the center of it.
1: And, I mean, the role of a lifetime in Willow. And it it, it borrows pretty heavily from uh, a text known as Lord of the Rings. But we don't have to talk sure. about that too much. Um So yeah, Warwick Davis plays a young farmer, the titular Willow, uh, who's chosen to undertake a perilous journey in order to protect a special baby from an evil queen. I gotta tell you right off the bat that the Gene Marsh queen scenes scared me to death as a child and really scared me to death as a 31-year-old.
0: Really? I felt absolutely nothing toward them. Please tell me. Oh my god.
1: I just find them terrifying. Just like the sharp black edges on everything and like her crown and her face. It's like brought to life some of the scariest Disney like evil queens. And that 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 is true. It's like uncanny almost. And yeah, I mean, it's probably just scared me because it reminded me of being scared as a kid. But it definitely fucking scared me as a kid.
0: Wow. Um, That's interesting. So... Kilmer pops up in this movie as a character named Mad Mardigan. One word. Mad Mardigan.
1: Mad Mardigan.
0: I thought it's it was. It's so
1: funny that the only person in this movie that calls him Mad Mardigan is Warwick Davis, and everyone else says Mad Mardigan.
0: He's a boastful, immured mercenary swordsman. Thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> wow. Incredible. Why do we even do this fucking show? I'm not going to talk yeah, about it. we catch up
1: to him left for dead in like this sort of like 1970s dance box. That's been like fashioned (laughs) to a tree.
0: It's like something that hangs from the ceiling in Carlito's way.
1: (laughs) Certainly. Absolutely. Uh, But yeah, he's been locked in it and left for dead. And I guess the other guy in the competing balance of the thing, he's dead. So there's just like, you think there's two bodies there. Turns out it's just Mad Martigan taking a nap. And when Val Kilmer is awoken from, you know, that kind of hibernation, he comes out swinging. He knows Mm. he hasn't been in the movie for 20 minutes, and he wastes no time.
0: In trying to choke out Willow, in trying to let you know, like, what a bastard he is who might be willing to help if it would get him out of this cage. Um,
1: Is he trying to start a 10-year relationship with Joanne Whaley as Sorcha? Who knows? It deprives me. Beauty of your eyes. One move, jackass, and you really will be a woman. You, are my sun, my moon, my starlit sky. Without you, I dwell in darkness. I love you.
0: What are you doing here?
1: Your power has enchanted me. I stand helpless against it. Come to me now, tonight. Let me worship you in my arms. Get away from me. I love you. That How can I stop The beating of my heart It pounds like Never before Out of fear Out of love I can stop it I'll kill you Death next to love Is a trivial thing
0: Medmardigan Is The Han Solo Analog of this story Or the Aragorn Uh, Yeah Right If Aragorn Like stayed Strider And was never The king of Gondor Sure Yeah um, But that sort of uh, Reluctant hero Who needs to be reminded Of his morals Is exactly the kind of character That needs charm Absolutely. Harrison Ford Lots of charm Viggo Mortensen In a much quieter way Is very like winning And good hearted And Val Kilmer Just like doesn't I- I'm definitely not saying He's not a good person I would never beseech him With that <laughs> But uh, uh, most, of our, most of our movie stars exude a kind of goodness without trying, and Val Kilmer just does not.
1: But yeah, no, I agree with you. He doesn't have enough charm by half, and I think it shows up almost immediately when everyone on screen is perplexed in, into like, the way he's behaving. Right. Or perplexed by he, the way he's behaving.
0: He can... The, so the funny thing is he's such a good actor that he can affect charm. Like the, so there's a scene where he's in the um you know, it's the it's the Moss Isley Cantina scene where, oh my uh, God. <laughs> where where uh where Willow, you know, finally like runs across him again and he's like cross dressing to try and what is he trying to do? Just escape?
1: Yeah, he's like trying to have relations with like the barkeeper's wife. And then he right. knows he's going to get caught, so he begins to disguise himself as a woman, so the owner doesn't, the proprietor doesn't know that he's having sex with his wife.
0: Right, and he gets out of it by uh, he's enraging, making a cuckold of him, enraging lug uh, so much at having like groped Mad Mardigan's own sort of fake bosom, and he has that moment where he like almost looks to Cameron and is like, guys. Meet Lug, and then he like ducks the punch that starts the brawl. And Like that's a moment where somebody told him or he knows that that needs to be like a moment of a real thousand watt shit-eating grin. Um, but he doesn't carry that like, it just kind of blows my mind. I mean like think about our movie stars. Their careers expand and expand and expand through this notion of like, I just want to spend time with that person. Like they're just cool. They're just charming. From Paul Newman to Julia Roberts to Will Smith to Chris Pine to name you. The thing is, you can't name more than like five people you would consider movie stars who are not charming. It's yeah. really weird. He, I think he looks really good in this part, especially once he puts a suit of armor on. Yeah. Um, he
1: does a lot of hair acting, which I like. Does, some,
0: does a good amount of hair acting. His best moment in the entire movie is again competition acting, it's where they're having this like massive battle with these trolls and this Hydra in this castle at the end. And he goes up to save Willow and one of the you know, the trolls are just like these, you know, grimy kind of ape creatures and they're like roaring at people and this troll like it's all up in his face and it's like bah! And Val goes, ah and like yells back at it. Like he's so annoyed that somebody made him interact with this like fake gorilla that he just yells back at it before he like kills it. Um, and again, it's a great sort of like found moment.
1: I'm going to disagree with you and say his best acting moment in this film is when ILM really gets to work and he like looks up and he's got a pig face suddenly.
0: <laughs> the pig shit came out of nowhere for me.
1: The I mean, the pig shit just comes out of nowhere. That's just a fact. It's very um, disturbing. yeah you'd think that this queen wouldn't have let everything like boil over so much if she had the ability to just turn people into pigs for a time. Yes. But yeah, there's this, uh, I would say the biggest special effect of this movie is probably the, the way these people turn from humans into pigs and then back again. And without, you know, showing too much skin, which is also a consideration for like a PG Mm -hmm. movie.
0: That's true. Yeah, you get some shots where like fifty people are mid pig transformation. How long yeah. must that have taken?
1: Ah, uh, a pig's age. Interesting. Let me say this. Do you think that what happens to the queen at the climax of the movie is George Lucas's uh, like run up to the infinite power? <laughs> He's still doing a bit. He knows it's unlimited. Um, that time I was trying to do it real unlimited. Unlimited power. There, so there's a, a bit um, in this movie where the queen like ages rapidly after exerting a lot of her like energy stuff, and it yeah. smacks of Palpatine getting all sort of melty, wrinkled, pruned. Yeah. Would you think a lady Gandalf? She kind of comes out of nowhere.
0: So if I can say, I so I'd never seen this movie before. Um and I just like flipping it on was like really in the mood to root for some original fantasy. I like was turning to Sarah while we were watching it and I was like, "Can you believe like this even exists? Like I'm just I'm so used to a world where just everything is intellectual property. It's like this is somebody just made this shit up." <laughs> um But I think it it straddles that weird kind of amorphous line where, like, when a story like this does become a franchise and something beloved, you are just like, oh, the character of Gandalf has such import. It's undeniable. When in reality, like, if you go back to the beginning, you're like, he's just a wizard. But if your original sci fi is, like, a little too thirsty to assume that you're going to love characters like Queen Bob and Finn Rizal, it feels like, it gives me a headache of like, I don't, why are these people fighting? Like, I don't know who they are, nor do I care. It may not
1: be IP, but it still is made with this like sort of cynical box checking of Hollywood fare in so much that it, it could easily be adapted just from like Disney's greatest hits. Like, it's everything you've seen in other movies done by a more adult-facing sort of production team. Uh, But, yeah, that's the big problem, I think, with these, like, big sort of expensive-looking Disney and family properties is that, like, there's no real heart at the center of it. And I think I'm relating to what maybe you're getting at, that, like, you really wanted to go into this rooting for... Something cool and original, but this I don't think is.
0: The heart at the center of it is Willow and the Baby, and for a movie called Willow, I just could have done with a lot more Willow.
1: I didn't understand. I could have done if it was called Baby, but not Willow. (laughs)
0: Well, that's the funny thing of of the movie. Like, its best bit is that everyone falls in love with this cute baby, including Mad Mardigan, where right. he's just like, you know, he's already like given this baby away to a Lilliputian on an eagle once, but the second time he gets it in his arms, he's just like, I'm going to feed it black root because that's what my mom gave me. <laughs> it's really nice. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just didn't understand why the story wasn't more oriented toward Willow, and then by the time, like, Finn Rizal was fighting the queen, I was like, why do I care about this, like, side character? Like, make good on the main character transformation of the movie.
1: Yeah. No, I agree with you. Um, it definitely has, like, a baby Yoda with the baby thing, which is kind of a baby,
0: baby situation.
1: Yeah. Like a baby, baby.
0: Like a baby human.
1: Yeah. Did you notice that, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark's Pat Roach who's the Nazi he fights under the plane is General Kale named for Pauline Kale who gave the Star Wars movies bad reviews.
0: I'm vigorously nodding. Um at the I read the same stuff you did. I still Incredible. Love that, I love that you're bringing it up.
1: <laughs> Incredible. I just love like the petty bullshit that like gets into movies. Uh <laughs> Did you read what Pauline
0: Kale had to say about it? She just like brushed pad it past and said it was an homage à moi. She just like did not care. She's like, oh, thanks for that. This, your movie sucks.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, they maybe would have had a better point had they not made a movie as shitty as Willow.
0: Right. Um, unfortunately, I do believe that Willow is a bad, bad.
1: Yeah, I really wanted it to be at least a bad good because again, it's like a seminal childhood movie. For me, and it's—I mean, it's certainly not as bad as the seminal childhood movie that we're going to be dealing with from your side of the world. <laughs> uh, so for You're that, great. I like wanted to give it a bad good, but I, I'm afraid that it is a bad bad.
0: Okay, we're going to 91, and we're going to the doors. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The ceremony is about to begin. <laughs> Krieger, the player. John Densmore, percussionist, 22 years old. <laughs>
1: Far out. There. Uh, Pamela Morrison, ornament.
0: Raymond Daniel Manzarek, 121239, musician.
1: Position.
0: Name? Occupation? Uh, Jim. You know today destroys a night. Night Sides are being chosen. The planet is screaming for change, Morrison. We gotta make the myths. Ah!
1: The Indian say the first shaman invented sex. The other
0: side, break on to the other.
1: They call him the one who makes you crazy. I'm the Lizard King. I can do anything.
0: This is Oliver Stone, coming off Platoon, coming off Born on the Fourth of July, before Natural Born Killers.
1: This is a movie by an auteurs director, yes, who who believes he can commit no cinematic crime.
0: And I am was, frankly, intoxicated by the energy of, of such a, <laughs> that he was giving off. But was um, like but the yeah, ethos th- th- of a project like that. A hundred percent. Yeah, so it's the story of uh, Jim Morrison, famed frontman of uh, 60s, I'm going to call him an organ band, an electric organ band of The Doors.
1: <laughs> a spoken word poetry collective, The Doors. And a bit of a provocateur, I would say, that Jim Morrison.
0: Absolutely. I think that's why Oliver Stone's so damn interested.
1: Incredible. I'm going to say at the top that I hate uh, 90% of the work of Oliver Stone and do not believe him to be a good director. Thoughts?
0: I didn't even know that. And I was watching this movie and I was like, Noah is going to hate this so much Be Like somewhere in the um, hypnotic saga That was the acid trip of the end in the Mojave Desert Like into the performance at Whiskey A Go-Go I was like, you know who doesn't have patience for this? Noah Ballard (laughs) I waited until it was over Cleared up for my own Oliver Stone trip And texted you You're not going to like this movie And then you didn't
1: (laughs) I don't think I can name a single movie in his filmography that I don't think could have been better like if directed by anyone else just wow. the like just the zero win against replacement director don't think it could be better
0: I don't agree with this but go ahead you don't even like like you don't like platoon you don't like JFK
1: I think pl- platoon is a, like a competent movie with maybe more politics than like filmmaking quality I think all of his movies are more politics than filmmaking quality. You know, I just don't have patience for maybe it's the transitions that he employs that I don't like, you know, whether it is the one you just described, whether it's Joseph Gordon Levitt becoming Edward Snowden mid interview as the camera goes (laughs) around someone's head. Well, Snowden's not good. I just don't have patience for like the way this movie is like, it's going to be docu realistic. And then it's just like, let's cast a bunch of people who can act as close to what they think these people did. And let's loosely throw together like historical points and see what happens. And that's just like not a thing that I love. Also, because like the subject matter, much like a lot of the subject matters he picks, like Jim Morrison's a douchebag. Of course. Like just the way Alexander the Great was a douchebag. Sure. You know, just the way everybody I, in Wall Street's a fucking douchebag.
0: And if I may say, soon enough, Noah wept, for there were no Oliver Stone movies left to name. Um,
1: Snowden's I, a douchebag, too. I, George I, W. Snowden. Bush was a douchebag. <laughs> This movie is
0: much, much, much better than Snowden and W. I I don't know, man. I think this is like bravura fucking filmmaking. Robert Richardson is your DP here, um, who basically made a career working with Stone, Tarantino, and Scorsese. Um, And there are just so many scenes in this movie that I find... Uh, Transfixing and powerful The thing of the joints in the air Exploding like a firework over Jim Morrison The scenes in the Mojave Just feel like they're on another planet There's just so many occasions where it feels like there's so much Heat in the frame That the film just might like catch on fire And I find the end Totally like haunting and weird What makes this such an interesting music Biopic for me is that Jim Morrison shows up as a fully Furnished myth Five minutes into the movie, you're hearing Doors songs five minutes into the movie as he just like shows up in Venice Beach, and then it is 140 minutes of decay, death, and betrayal of one's own ideology. Will I argue that that is watchable or should be watchable to you? Absolutely not. But uh, I think it's pretty compelling.
1: I will agree with you that the visuals in this movie are breathtaking and like really well done and yeah the photography is incredible i just like there's something about the mixture of the storytelling technique and how unsympathetic predatory and frankly toxic this person ends up becoming that it's just like why are we watching this anti heros destruction
0: i think you're watching it because oliver stone is fascinated i'm i agree with you that he Is infatuated with polemics, but I think he's interested in power and the cult of power, and that's what's going on here. I mean, there are lots of moments where like Jim embarrasses himself in fairly banal settings, like uh, you know, kind of a grungy looking hotel room, or like a child's birthday party, or Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, getting sweet
1: potatoes to the face—that was great. Yeah,
0: but the moments where he is. Most like a rock god are all about the way That other people see him It's all about the faces looking up at him From the whiskey a go or from the You know the street outside Yeah these um,
1: ravenous teens
0: I think Stone is interested in an Interface With power and the ability That he has to Recreate that cult is Disturbing and rare I mean most of the time I just watch music Biopics and I'm like Impression, that's an impression. When are they going to meet the guy who gives him his first record contract? And this movie has those beats, but they're like all in the middle of something that feels kind of like unreal and mobile and weird. And I was just- oh, It's definitely,
1: it. I mean, it's definitely all those things. And I think that some of the like photography of the crowds too is exceptional. And it's like, how did they sure. get that many people into a place to film like this? Unbelievable. That's pretty cool, um, and I'm not. I'm not begging. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm not begging for the tropes of a music biopic. Sure. I guess what I'm hungry for more is that ultimately, this movie is like that reverse mythology where you like begin with what you perceive as your understanding about this American figure, and then it like unravels. But for me, it doesn't unravel. Fully or to the promise of a movie like this where like his parents would show up and you'd be like, huh, he's just like a normal dude with like a family like there. That's always like at the edges of this movie and really doesn't portray him. I think anything less than some sort of weird prophet and never quite brings him down to the status of man. Maybe that's not the goal. I don't know, but that's what I wanted more. I wanted this movie to be more like, if it was going to portray him negatively, make it more like a shattered glass kind of thing, where you like poke at this person's like insane life and the lies that they tell the world. To go back to my
0: assessment of what Stone is interested in, I don't think he's interested in disrobing him completely of that power. And that would be a more human move. Um, but yeah, he doesn't want to give away the the throne totally on that one. I think the mo- the most human thing about him is like just his his bullshit. He just is this sort of like sex god who uh is impotent unless he is either faced with death or high on cocaine A really interesting thing to like excavate that's sort of embarrassing but you know, he does a lot of spewing of, like, high philosophy about uh, the doors of perception, and yet he's fucking wasted on whiskey the entire movie. What doors of perception is he is he making it through when he's that numbed out? Um, right. yeah, yeah, what
1: possible voice in his head could be leading us to some sort of understanding? Like, I agree with his, I guess, most of his politics. I just don't think he really has that many and that's ultimately sort of a right. strange thing to be left with when he is perceived as such a like name brand character of this movement of you know the the combination of art, music and politics from the late 1960s.
0: I think Stone is trying to just like, synthesize all of these like really terrible stories that you may have heard about Jim Morrison with this, you know the way that like if you go look in the comments section of, you know, stuff about comparing footage from the doors of the movie to real life, it's all people who are still mad at Oliver Stone because they're just like, you made Jim Morrison look bad. He was he a soulful, <laughs> shy introvert. And the thing that I think is so funny about that is I think we watched a movie about a soulful, shy introvert. You just didn't like how it's squared with um, you know, trying to actually put together somebody who like yelled the N word at people and was like terrible to women and like trying to put that into an energy of a uh, two and a half hour movie. I think Val is trying to put that all together. Uh, can we talk about Val?
1: For sure. That, I mean, that's why we're here.
0: I don't know, man. I think he's like, kind of, this is like a God level method performance for me. Uh, yeah.
1: I prefer his singing to Jim Morrison uh, in general.
0: So incredible how he, like, evokes the different eras of Jim Morrison, too. Yeah. Um, Fat,
1: drunk Jim Morrison singing is hilarious.
0: Sure. But, like, I think he kind of took the question, can you play, like, a fucked up, charismatic, wunderkind, sex hound, poet, drug addict? And Val was like, yes, I can do all that. And what if we actually, like, turn the volume up on those things a little
1: bit? Yeah. Is that all?
0: (laughs) Yeah. my God. But uh his positive. Yeah, he famously did He's not the- want
1: this to be like a drug movie. Uh and I guess they could have gone harder with that stuff, but it's certainly like an alcohol movie, and it's certainly like a Sid and Nancy kind of like toxic, movie. yeah, psychedelic yeah. and all, food fight. I mean what whatever you want to see, you're gonna see in this movie.
0: It's true. Um
1: Can I say one yeah. positive thing about this movie? I really liked Kyle McLaughlin in this role. I felt like he was both unrecognizable and like so recognizable in the same way where he's like kind of always this like goofy savant. But in this one, he's also like a goofy savant capitalist where he's just like, when he first meets Jim Morrison, he's just like, he reads him or he sings him some song and he's like, you got more of that shit written down, man, let's go make a million bucks. And they practice two times and then they fucking do.
0: Yeah. He plays uh Raymond Zarek, Who's the, the keyboardist for the band. Um, yeah, yeah. I love the, uh, there's the iconic scene where they're, they're getting on the plane and the guy with the camera's like name and profession and Kyle McLaughlin's Ray is just like Raymond Manzarek born X year musician comma keyboardist. <laughs>
1: <laughs> He's really good. It's great. I also think Frank Whaley and Kevin Dillon are pretty good as the guitar and drummer, um, guitar player and drummer, respectively.
0: They're certainly good at being outgunned when it comes to Persona.
1: (laughs) But that's the thing that I think this movie ultimately lacks in a Val Kilmer retrospective like we're doing, is someone that he can do battle with on screen because, and I hate to say it, it's not fucking Meg Ryan.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely not. It's just, it's sad what he... It's sad what Jim does to Pam in this movie, and it's kind of sad what Val does to Meg is, Ryan. It
1: is, it is. It's, I think yeah. it's more the latter. Like, when he's climbing out the window and she's, like, losing it, it almost feels like she just, like, can't keep up with him in the scene, not like she can't keep up with him in the story.
0: There's an interview where, you know, uh interviewer is just like, so, living in Jim Morrison's skin for three months, like, what was that like? And Val's very quick to be like, it was way worse for Meg. <laughs> for so sure. at least he has that self-awareness. But that Um,
1: sucks though.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it does. It does.
1: And she's also, Um, I mean, I feel bad for that working experience for her, but like she's also like not that strong of a leading actor. No
0: matter how important and prestigious a Val Kilmer character is, he is really good at portraying like weakness and airheadedness. And I love that he always has that like California 14-year-old in his back pocket at the Thanksgiving scene. Where uh, Pam like looks at the Kathleen Quinlan character Who's like a rock journalist and a Wiccan And who's been like doing these sort of like blood sacrifice Making him drink his own blood, yeah Blood sacrifice marathon fox with Jim Morrison And Pam goes, Jim, you actually put your dick in this woman? And Jim goes, well Sometimes, yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah I like the I like that even if it does not bring him back to a human two feet on the ground level, it has no qualms about being like this is a weak, weak man,
1: but isn't this just like drunk Chris Knight at like the end of being a celebrity for ten years?
0: Yes, <laughs> I don't think I can answer anything but yes to that,
1: <laughs> yeah, does the movie really ever like answer this? why like the weird sort of like uh, Native American undertones at his like great moments of like being fucked up.
0: I think that's something that Jim Morrison believed or self-fashioned. I wanted to ask you though, because Val says he's part Cherokee, right?
1: Yeah, and is that in the, the memoir? He, that is very a very little bit in the memoir. I don't think he's like it feels like more like an Elizabeth Warren kind of connection to
0: like a one eighth, one sixteenth kind of thing.
1: Something in there. Yeah. He spends very little time on it, but does like speak of a spiritual connection,
0: but maybe not enough to warrant like scene after scene of being haunted by a Shaman.
1: Sure. I mean the movie before this, um, Thunderheart is like all about like a white passing police detective who then goes into a reservation to solve a, cl- a crime and he has mm. native american lineage. So he has played that up historically. Yeah, and it's here again too but I don't think that Jim Morrison like had any like the movie posits that because he oh, saw Oh yeah, he's just lying. Yeah. And I wonder if it isn't like both a little appropriative by Jim and then also by Oliver to like give this movie Like a spiritual lining that it otherwise doesn't quite earn.
0: I I can't disagree with that. I mean, as even as as I've defended it, like the Oliver Stone isms, like venture into indulgent trash like more than a few times. Like the the thing at the end where he just like shows the newsreel of like the '60s is completely unearned. Like, yeah, we get it. The '60s were tumultuous. So is now. Um mm-hmm. and I also did not appreciate the way the movie portrayed incredible late 60s singer-songwriter Nico <laughs> as yeah. someone sort of this like just like I don't know, bimbo.
1: That was yeah. that sucked. Bimbo is the word. It was very strange. Um,
0: There's definitely moments where it gets out of control and too much and uncaring because Oliver Stone is also sort of like a questionable person.
1: For sure. And I mean, there's definitely a reason that people don't talk about this movie in the canon of music biopics, though I think it has like mostly positive ratings.
0: I think I would argue that it has. It could have an important place, like if we acknowledge that there is something interesting about art about bad people, um, which I think this movie does kind of know. But yeah, like there's no and it does have some sort of cult following. But but yeah, we're just I don't know. The majority of our culture is not wired that way. They want to see like Freddie Mercury be perfect, and who the fuck cares if Rami Malek sings? We'll still give him the Oscar. Um, I think the physical performance Val Kilmer is giving is amazing. This definitely belongs in the essentials. Um, So here's what I'm wondering: if I'm crazy enough not to give this a good good, and give it a good bad, can you get on board with that?
1: I think this movie's a bad bad.
0: Ah, all right. then I got to give it a good good. I watched it. You're going to give almost, it a good good just almost, as a reaction to my I watched almost twice cuz I think it has the You watched this I, movie
1: 2 times of your own volition.
0: Yeah, I did. Cuz I think it is a fucking sonic journey too. Like I love the way that the music oh, yeah, it's is It's got
1: really good music and I mean well, the doors are good.
0: Well, yeah, it's but it's we and it not the like, and then they came up with a song, and then they came up with a song, and then they came up with this one. It's
1: just well, a like, lot of this movie is also Val Kilmer just being like, and then I fucked a Nazi butt, <laughs> you know, and it's like I don't, I don't need that. I think it's not good. Interesting. Okay, if you're not interested in hearing Val Kilmer in front of ten thousand extras scream about Nazis and like butt stuff.
0: Then you side with Noah That's good We haven't like fir- We haven't not Firmly disagreed On something like that In a while Speaking See. of Can we go to 1993 For a Quick pit stop In the town of Tombstone Arizona What
1: do you want Ringo I want your blood and I want your soul. And I want them both Right now I don't want any more trouble. Bro. Well, you got trouble! And it starts with you. I'm
0: not going to fight you, Ringo. There's no money in it. Sober up. Come on, boys.
1: Wretched slugs. Don't any of you have the guts to play for blood? I'm your huckleberry. That's just my game.
0: No, do you remember how this was one of the only times we lost the audio of an episode? We started it and you rated Tombstone bad good, like a reasonable person and you got so mad at me that you then rated it bad bad when we re-recorded.
1: It sounds like something I would do.
0: It happened. What's your take on Kilmer and Tombstone before I...
1: Oh, he's great. I think he was the the only entertaining part of it is the performances. uh, Somewhere between Kurt Russell... And Val Kilmer, you get this sort of crazed madness that fuels the movie in a forward-moving way. Uh But yeah, I mean, it's not like a great movie by any by any means.
0: I can't really argue that it's a great movie. I think it's very entertaining,
1: and I if think if you want to see seasick, uh, Val Kilmer for two seasick. plus he's got kind of that jaundice sort of like you know, stepping from side to side if as if dizzy or drunk, coughing all over himself. It's...
0: He's got tuberculosis.
1: Well, obviously. Doc holiday. He is your huckleberry. Will you do... I know you're itching to do... I mean, Just you already lines. did it at the top, but do it. I'll let you do a couple. For, for 1993's sake, do a couple lines.
0: Okay. Um, my favorite... One of my favorites is the scene where Stephen Lang is getting so mad at him at Doc Holiday for winning so many hands of poker in a row, and he goes, what is that, 12 hands in a row holiday, you son of a bitch? Nobody's that lucky! And Val goes, why, Ike, maybe poker's just not your game. I know. (laughs) Let's have a spelling contest. (laughs) that's good this script but this is the thing like he is very charming in this movie but it is because every ounce of the script is calibrated to make this guy so fucking cool that even when he's on a 48 hour bender and is about to fall down and die in like his own lung infection (laughs) he's still got the zingers about knowing that ike clanton is not educated um (laughs) I don't know, man. I'm I'm biased, of course. This is like probably I was thinking about this honestly. This is like probably this and Robert Shaw as Captain Quint are maybe like my favorite acting performances ever. Wow. So I'm I'm out to sea on this one. Um, but yeah, he changes the entire chemistry of what otherwise is a fairly average western, and somehow gets like Kurt Russell and Powers Booth and Michael Bean and Stephen Lang and Thomas Hayden Church to just like try to get to his level which leads to some preposterous acting from people who are like not known for trying to get to that level um it's great method my sister who also loves this movie like won our episode when we did it a couple years ago by saying he just looks like a melting wax statue um he's brilliant yeah so that's 93 uh, true romance he actually plays elvis off screen for like 30 seconds um, can we make the quickest of pit stops at Wayne Manor? Absolutely. I rewatched this one, uh, cause it was like, again, a favorite of mine when I was like seven, I thought it was like the best movie ever <laughs> when I like had half that, the brain. Did that hold up for you? <laughs> no, it's very bad. Um, and Val, the thing with Val is even when he's boring, like you know that in his mind he's boring for a reason. And I think what happened here is that like he completely outthought himself, and took the thing that Keaton had, where Keaton is like, "Well, Bruce Wayne is not so secretly like kind of fucked up, right?" So I'm gonna have these kind of like manic, uh, neurotic outbursts. And Kilmer was just like, "No, this guy with PTSD is so numb and internal that he can't let anyone in, including the audience." And when the rest of the movie is like this miniature haunted house schlockfest captained by Joel Schumacher, you're going to come off as very, very boring (laughs) if you try to do that with the Bruce Wayne character. So you're willing to take a life. As long as it's Two-Face.
1: Then it will happen this way. You make the kill. But your pain doesn't die with Harvey, it grows. So you run out into the night to find another face. And another. And another. Until one terrible morning you wake up and realize that revenge has become your whole life. And you won't know why. For sure. And it's also around this time, dare I say it, I hate to be I hate to be picky. But this is around the time where Val Kilmer physically began to like sort of join Aaron Sorkin and like the white guys whose faces kind of shoot outward the older they get and like go from this sort of perfect angle to sort of like more of a square.
0: I a hundred percent know what you're saying. I think he's still pretty hot in Batman forever.
1: Oh yeah. No, I I'm not saying he's hit, you know, full on, you know, early, but yeah, like Iceman's face 50s, is a
0: triangle. For sure. And, and he's starting
1: to show his age, I would say, here. It's sure. all the cigarette smoking and the drinking and the partying too hard and dating share. It's mm-hmm. all it's all going out.
0: The other weird thing about this movie, last thing I'll say about it, is that Nicole Kidman, who is maybe the most attractive person to ever have appeared in film in this movie. Her she plays this preposterous psychologist named Chase Meridian, you remember this? I do. But she wants to fuck Batman, not (laughs) Bruce Wayne. And so like all of her scenes with Bruce Wayne, she's just like, I'm not that interested. And you as the audience are like, Yeah, we're not that interested either. And (laughs) it it makes for like a real stiff, dull presence at the center of this movie. Same year is Heat, a movie we discussed very recently.
1: That's unbelievable to me that like a time existed where the Joel Schumacher Batman Forever came out the same year as one of the best crime movies ever made.
0: It's uh, the mid nineties are really something. Um, So we talked about this on our Pacino episode like a month ago. Did not discuss Kilmer very much. What? How do you feel about him in this movie?
1: I think Heat is where he like figures out something sort of bizarre where he like doesn't need to speak. He can just sort of like be in the world. And I think mm. it it may not suit him for any other role, but it sort of shows his return to like this boyish, I don't give a fuck type attitude that maybe he brought to his earlier roles uh, that made him famous, that parenthetically a lot of, I feel like male actors sort of turn to as their careers are, you know, maybe going over that first roller coaster hill. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so he gives a very staid but very scary performance, and like doesn't have that many lines, and like, I don't think I can remember him really saying that much, but you totally. know he's in the movie, and you can like remember his face from it.
0: I'm a hundred percent on board with this assessment. I think he is like a great ornament in this movie and a really good like manifestation of someone who I think the frightening part is that he is the Chris character is not keeping up with this philosophy that Neil Macaulay or De Niro is laying down of like, when the heat is around the corner, you got to be able to give up all attachments and leave. And we know this is Chris's fatal flaw, but the fact that he's not like over explaining the fact that he just like is listening and not doing it is somehow much darker in a Michael Mann kind of way. And also Michael Mann never really finds him with the camera. Michael Mann, unlike so many of these other directors is, is like, this is not Val Kilmer's movie. i'll 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 give you a close-up of the ponytail but i'm not going to give him like 10 scenes where he steals it
1: i don't know what you're doing remember jimmy mcelwain on the yard used to say you want to be making moves on the street have no attachments allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner remember that Me, the sun rises and sets with her, man. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so after Heat, we have a an epic Hollywood bomb in the island of Doctor Moreau, another kind of bomb, Ghost in the Darkness, which is a William uh, Goldman script.
0: That's right. I actually did watch that one out of curiosity. I haven't Um, seen it. It's fine. It again is like Val Kilmer making such a choice About this like English engineer Who has to go build this bridge in East Africa That he he's like too buttoned up He's It's just like engineers would not be that interesting He wants to like take care of the people Who are his workers in this, you know Now it's also just like It's a hard movie to watch because it has no sense of colonial politics. It's like a mid-90s movie where it's just like, white guy has all these black workers, tries to save him from a lion. We cool with that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I got a little nervous with that one, just seeing like the two white guys on the poster and then having the opening phrase of the synopsis being like set in Africa.
0: Yeah. Um, My big takeaway, though, Ghost in the Darkness, is uh, they're in the wrong roles. Michael Douglas shows up an hour of the way in as this sort of like mythical like he's maybe been out in the tall grass too long hunter oh, nice. who comes in to kill the lions and he's like super weird and he's trying way too hard and Kilmer's just like I am an Irish bridge engineer thank you for coming sir and <laughs> they should switch roles. Yeah. Like Kilmer needs to be the weirdo who comes in from the savannah. That's funny. Then we. So 1997
1: what? is upon us, Chance <laughs> And do you know what that year contained? It was your favorite movie growing up The no, Saint No,
0: that's not Little inaccurate I said it was a VHS staple Of the Soul and Piper household
1: Which it was How we many times do you think you watched The Saint As a person, a young ch- a child A young person
0: Like five or six Wow not as many as Tombstone or Batman Forever, though, so I guess I could stand on that ground. Wow. We picked the Saint because of my personal attachment to it, but also because it is like uh a...
1: It's them trying to do the born identity with Val Kilmer.
0: It's just also just a blatant, blatant, blatant attempt to capitalize on his movie stardom and acting chops by letting him play this like master of disguise who is like a, a thief falling in love in Moscow and London and, you know, jet-setting around. And it just feels like such an industry move on this downslide that it is like a, such an interesting failure of like, yep, it didn't work here, and I'm sorry to say this, it's never going to work.
1: The big problem with a movie like The Saint is that if you don't believe... Val Kilmer in a costume in the first scene where he's in a costume you're really not going (laughs) to like every other scene
0: if you don't find his Australian accent in the first five minutes to be credible you're going to be no
1: more compelled by his (laughs) German dandy accent
0: yeah his evocation of Goethe is not going to do it (laughs) not going to do it for you a man without a name can never be identified. We've got a handful of false identities used on visas, passports.
1: My name is Bruno Hartenforst. I am... I'm Tony. Tony St. A man who doesn't exist can never be caught. I've been chasing him for nearly two years. He eluded a hit squad this morning in Holland Park. A man who doesn't love never truly be alive this woman has discovered something that will revolutionize the world
0: it's a formula for creating energy
1: you will steal it for
0: me how did you do that
1: magic when we master this technology then we dictate terms to the west give it up you got no place to go i escaped i always escape. So, so the saint is Simon Templar, the saint, Val Kilmer, uh, is a thief for hire whose latest job to steal the secret process for cold fusion puts him at odds with a traitor bent on toppling the Russian government as well as the woman who holds the secret. I would maybe tweak that phrase, IMDb, uh, to say as well as the scientist who holds that secret. <laughs>
0: Therein lies one of the main problems of this movie. Therein lies,
1: because it, it really is, she is not playing a scientist. She, unfortunately, Elizabeth Shue, um, doesn't have a lot to do in this movie. Or maybe well, she has she, a ton to do. It's unclear.
0: In the words of uh, Doc Holliday, unfortunately, she has not yet begun to defile herself. Um, oh, man. Because she's supposed to be like a Marie Curie like pioneering yeah physicist. level like
1: top of her generation uh in level of contribution to society uh, scientist
0: and the purpose that she serves in this movie is to basically slide back into being like a 14 year old girl who like just must have val kilmer because he like read her diary and dresses like her dead dad
1: <laughs> yeah well yeah it is very strange the just how brief the transition is from her as like spunky leading scientist who's like in a school, a whole room full of people who were gathered in some sort of science forum to not talk not. about whether cold fusion's a real thing, and then two scenes later, yeah, she's just like virginal woman who is willing to give up this career she's clearly worked years and years for to talk to this dutch guy
0: <laughs> i am so shocked to hear you say that he was dutch did you actually figure out what nationality that character was supposed to be
1: you don't think it's dutch you don't think that wig is says doesn't say dutch to you
0: oh it said it said europe but i couldn't narrow it down more than that
1: it's like the guy that you're afraid your sister's gonna meet on her trip to amsterdam kind of thing sure yeah Like the long sort of flowing brown wig and like the sort of somewhere between like, I don't know, formal pants and like pantaloons and like he's kind of wearing like the puffy shirt from Seinfeld at one point and she just loves it. He's sort of this, yeah, this uh, Scandinavian (laughs) pirate.
0: I was going to say a Jim Morrison by way of a Renaissance fair.
1: It is funny seeing him do Jim Morrison after have seen, having seen The Saint because it's a very weird – it's almost like asking him to play a lot of his previous roles. Yeah. Um, but the weirdest thing at the heart of this movie is that he doesn't have, like, Simon. He's always, like, doing a bit for the right. most part.
0: right. And, like, it's all too easy to be, like, and that's the point of the movie, man. It's, like, there is no Simon. But, like, this is not a movie that's remotely prepared to make that sort of, like, deep, navel-gazy thematic read work. It's just a big problem that there is no authentic character here. And so it becomes... At one point, for fuck's sake, he has, like, this Mrs. Doubtfire disguise where he's, like, cleaning a Kremlin (laughs) office. And, uh... We were howling, and unfortunately, there is no line delivered in that scene where he is playing a buxom <laughs> maid. <laughs> From Philip Noyce, who is a you know league average to mediocre like '90s action director. I think like Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger are fine. I think Bone Collector's pretty bad.
1: Um, this like exists on a spectrum and like a period of time where. Yeah, these sorts of action movies were, like, obsessed with a certain, like, Russian Eastern thing, and it, like, that was just sort of generally the villain, sort of starting in the, yeah, the mid-90s and ending with, I would say, something like Triple X or, like, Behind Enemy Lines or something. Sure. Yeah, yeah, this is very much in that, like, weird, like, icky Eastern Bloc thing.
0: Totally. The crumbling of the Soviet Bloc into these, like, sort of odd little fiefdoms. And, like, it who's going to get a loose nuke, basically?
1: Who is going to get a loose nuke?
0: Um, it's my little
1: loose nuke. You don't know <laughs> what I got?
0: <laughs> but we did know. Um, so, I guess the most interesting part of this, like, all, well, I guess what I was trying to say is, even compared to, like, a Tom Clancy adaptation, this movie doesn't make any sense. Like, if you try to follow what should just be, like, a basic action movie plot, it feels like you're reading... Uh, like le carré backward or something it it it's not like fun in just even a basic action movie mechanic way
1: no the only thing that is coherent is its problematic gender roles
0: (laughs) so this leads me into like why the hell did we watch this and like why did you and i have a watch party with my sister grace and
1: why were you Um, allowed to watch this as a child is i think the more troubling question did you confront your mom about this
0: I did. She was super into Val Kilmer. That's why Tombstone, Batman, Forever, and The Saints were all key VHSs of my childhood. Um, and when I told her I was disappointed in it, she was like so hurt. But her So her argument is that he was... First of all, she liked was a big fan of the Roger Moore TV show. And as always, if you are invested in previous source material, you're definitely going to be more invested in the movie. I get it. I had no context for that. But her argument was that this was sort of like a better... Uh, More respectful James Bond I guess because of like The intensity That the saint shows To Dr. Emma Russell Like the wooing The wooing process um, Which I think actually just Reveals more interesting things About my mom's politics Than the saints Which is like She much prefers A sort of like borderline Over the borderline Just like a really creepy Pursuit of a female character by a male character than somebody who like treats character as disposable for sex. But that's where she was coming from.
1: I think if anything, she's, she's just confirmed that if presented the opportunity, she would have left your family and her like life's work to run off with Val Kilmer
0: with the saint or with Val
1: or yeah, either him in character or not. Sure. Uh, Cause Val Kilmer kind of like is the saint. It's like almost a perfect look at, his like, is there a Val Kilmer underneath all these bizarre roles?
0: You're right. this The Saint is bad, bad, and I'm just really confused by my whole upbringing.
1: I think the the Saint is one of the worst movies we've watched uh, for this podcast. <laughs> if I'm well... being honest or generous. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely it's bad, bad and not unless you're doing your own. Val Kilmer podcast retrospective and you need to like see where the ship like scratches against the bottom of the ocean. Uh, Here it is.
0: I think it's essential in that sense, but like it's not one of the best Val Kilmer performances. It's among the worst.
1: Yeah. And if anything, it sets up, you know, a new decade in the early 2000s that really doesn't bring much better.
0: No, there's some interesting things in here, but every time he goes back to like a big budget Hollywood thing, it's a failure. um you checked in with Red Planet, which is
1: really bad it's oh it's it's exceptionally bad that <laughs> one I think maybe it could be a bad good though okay, but it's definitely really poorly made
0: mm-hmm mm-hmm I think what it does lead to is this like run of sort of like, not really like independent movies, but really small budget Hollywood fare. Um, like the salt and sea is he's like going for it. Um And we're going to talk about Wonderland.
1: Right. So I think like five years into this is, I guess, 2003, a few years into the two thousands, he does get some meteor roles like Wonderland's, then a year later, like Spartan, that he does um, with Mamet, which not a successful movie, but his like has him working against like well both David Mamet as a director and a David Mamet script. Um,
0: I watched Spartan too. I thought I don't. Yeah, it's not a great movie, but Val is doing something interesting in it.
1: I think Val is really good and shows that he will be able to do his kiss kiss bang bang role, which I would argue maybe other than Felon, is like the only decent movie he's done since 2005.
0: So do we want to talk about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang real quick? We've reviewed it previously on our Shane Black episode, um, but it probably is the one back here that if we hadn't done it already, we would have to hit. Um, What do you think of his performance as Gay Perry?
1: I think it's great. I mean, it's like I talked about in the opening if you put him up against someone who's got something that they're trying to do also, and this catches Robert Downey Jr. like in the upswing of the Iron Man stuff and feeling pretty confident, like then you have really good, funny rapport between the two of them because they're competitively acting. Where's my gun? I, uh, no, I- uh. Give me my gun. No, I, I got rid of it. Say again? Yeah, I threw it in the lake, because I figured you wouldn't I would. I got priors in New York, so I really can't, I can't be messing around. You with threw that. it away? Yeah, plus it's evidence. <laughs> what? Watch it. Okay, relax. okay, oh, no, I'm sorry. I, I got a little non-plus there. Okay, That's this cool. is crazy. I understand. No, Just relax. It's... Whoa, what is that? Is that, a, is that a clue? What do you mean? Do you see that? In the thing? Can you... Ow! What were you thinking? My $2,000 ceramic
0: vector my mother got me as a special gift? You threw in the lake next to the car. What happens when they drag the lake? You think they'll find my pistol? Jesus. Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll
1: find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are!
0: What you have is like people like Herzog or Shane Black um, or David Mamet who probably like look at something like the doors and they're like, you know what? I kind of think The Doors is a masterpiece, and I don't care how difficult that guy is. I want to work with him. <laughs> right, so that's like sure. sort of his saving grace if he has one back here. And you you know, what you see him go back to spoof again. He's very credible and funny in MacGruber because um, somebody saw Top Secret and they're like, you know what, this guy can play the heavy across from Will Forte in this ridiculous movie <laughs> that no one will like, but then like the internet will be like, it's actually pretty good. Um, so yes.
1: So we talk about Wonderland.
0: Let's go back to Wonderland. So let's go back to 2003. Um, I'm really glad we watched this movie. We kind of did it on a lark, like looking for the most interesting, like what is the most interesting, like 40 something Kilmer movie of all these movies I've never heard of. And in this movie from director James Cox, whose work I did not know. Did you know any other James Cox movies? Let's see. Oh, God, he made Billionaire Boys Club.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he found himself in the precarious situation of being the director of Billionaire Boys Club right as uh, its star, Kevin Spacey, was publicly canceled.
0: I wouldn't wish that kind of managerial nightmare on anyone.
1: Yeah, I can't even. You stop taking that person's calls at some point. But yeah, Wonderland is a funny movie um, because it, it finds both, I would say, indie cinema around Los Angeles in an interesting moment. And it also finds Val Kilmer at an interesting moment. And so it's, it's, it finds, you know, the, it's inspiration in true life where in a police investigation of a brutal crime scene, one man was at the center of it all. Legendary porn star, John Holmes, the Wonderland murders. Hi everybody. I'm John Holmes. Wait, who's John Holmes? Holmes is one of the biggest stars in the X-rated film industry. Who do you love? Look who just walked in. Yeah, who do you love? rock and roll. This is the best party I've ever been to.
0: In the summer of 1981, the Hollywood Hills was the place to be. Life is just too good. The party couldn't get any hotter. L.A. in the summer.
1: Anything can happen. The knights couldn't get any longer.
0: The money or the guns in two days.
1: And he couldn't get any bigger. You want to see it? Yeah. Sure, John. I'm his girl. What happened, Joan?
0: I had to, Sharon. I had no choice. The Southland is in shock today over a series of brutal killings that occurred here on Wonderland Avenue early today. Beginning to
1: think that... So yeah, you have Val Kilmer as the as John Holmes. He's both dating Dawn Schiller, played by Kate Bosworth, and he's also married to uh, Sharon Holmes, played by Phoebe. Um, Lisa Kudrow. Lisa Kudrow. And then it's it's a it's a who's who of uh, cameos that lead us through. I think I summed it up almost perfectly with uh, who's who of the early 2000s doing Boogie Nights by way of usual suspects.
0: Sure. Or Rashomon. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Right at the top of the movie, it's just like John Holmes was like legendary. And this is what happens like after you're not legendary. And I really admire the fact that the movie never gives up on that time orientation. I thought the thing that I was going to hate about this movie, that it would be like, Val Kilmer like grinning his ass off Of this guy who just like has a legendarily Large penis and is like still sort of like Skating by on This weird subcultural celebrity And it is not he is So sad And strange And you're like just in fact Instead of like being blinded by Like a false glimmer you're like Looking you're searching the movie over For like can this guy muster The charisma to get Away with anything here and where and how
1: it's funny to see him do this role at this time because in every scene he's like digging for that charisma and that charm that chance and i have claimed he doesn't have the preceding 20 years and it ends up being this sort of two two prongs part of he kind of doesn't have it in the way we expect. And then he has this like maybe much darker side to him, which I don't know that we've seen yet in his career, but like maybe is coming at some point. We'll see what his cameo role is in Top Gun Maverick.
0: Sure. Better comes out. Um, yeah. He's kind of fascinating as John Holmes. Cause he, the movie makes no bones about the fact that everyone is, Looking at that bulge in his pants Like Carrie Fisher's eyes in the opening scene Noticeably land uh, Where that would be Um, But he's also like Embarrassed over that Status publicly by like Josh Lucas uh, just like bullying Him um, and like Demanding that other like guests at this party Can like touch his dick Um, Which I was so surprised by That scene
1: But it almost feels like Having Val Kilmer in this movie is sort of like James Cox saying, Okay, Val, like, we're all here to see your dick. Like, pull it out. Let's do the Val Kilmer thing. Come on now. And it's almost the movie has that moment in this scene where it's, I felt like you see the real Val Kilmer. You see the real Simon Templar of this actor, like, sort of bearing it all and being surprised at how low things have gotten so unexpectedly.
0: Is this the uh, the deposition scene at the end?
1: Oh, for sure. But then him like putting that back together and revising the narrative of what happened to him in a way that makes him look like either the good guy or the victim uh, smacks, frankly, of the book that you then read in his memoir. Mm, that's interesting.
0: We should say so. The the Rashomon esque structure of this is. Um, all of these people at this house on Wonderland Avenue, five of them, or four, critically, are murdered um, after John Holmes has disappeared from his Kate Bosworth partner for the night and then like comes back in the morning and then Dylan McDermott, who
1: plays- The mustached this- Dylan McDermott. Oh, my God. With terrible, terrible mustache. Um, yeah, he gives his account of how he wasn't killed that night but everybody he knew including his girlfriend was and how john holmes is to blame and it's and almost like the a first 20 half.
0: minute thing yeah of just I mean, like that's
1: the, the first half of the movie is them verifying his story and right. then the second half is them encountering john and hearing his side of the story
0: and it's all based around this they're trying to rip off this like real life club owner slash smuggler Called Eddie Nash, who's played by Eric Bogosian, the playwright, and who you might recognize recently from Uncut Gems.
1: He's um, incredible.
0: But also that is very, very clearly. I have everything but PTA saying it. That is definitely the Alfred Molina guy from Boogie Nights.
1: A hundred percent. I mean this. Down this this movie to the Burgundy is, Robe. Yeah, this movie t- takes a lot of cues from a superior movie, uh, including but not limited to that. Um Including but not limited to whatever Josh Lucas believes himself to be doing on screen.
0: My God, it's um, so funny to see Dylan McDermott and Josh Lucas and Tim Blake Nelson like in this one version of events, just play like these coked up, screaming animal noise like perverts. And you're like, Josh Lucas and Tim Blake Nelson are doing this? And I think where the movie makes good is in the other version of it, they're behaving much more like you would expect Josh Lucas and Tim Blake Nelson to behave. So there's a moment in the the Chuck Klosterman profile that I was talking about where, like, why does he go to Santa Fe to talk to this guy? And it turns out that, like, Val has sort of invited him out there because Klosterman had written something where he, like, called Val Kilmer, like, advanced in the way that he approaches acting. And he one of his key examples was like there's a scene in this movie where like he sits down and he's like waiting to be invited to do coke in a way that closeman was like that's you couldn't write that nobody would naturally think like to behave that way and he it's just holmes like sitting in a chair back like this dog like waiting for a treat like the best trained terrier waiting for a treat and then somebody's like john get your Stick your fucking nose in here What are you waiting for And he's just like Thanks Um, And it's It's little tics like that That are fascinating When he brings that There's something really Disturbing and real About him bringing The six pack of Budweiser Back to the hotel After the murders Like most movies And most actors Would just be like Yeah you stumble in there And you're all suspicious But he stopped to get Fucking Budweiser And he also stops To drink it Like he's really thirsty Before he passes out For 48 hours it's really weird observation of human behavior.
1: I love the scene where he's giving his depositions to the administrative police officer they've brought in and you can tell that like he's ready to do it. He's just not ready to do it there and didn't expect to do it like in the hotel room. And he's like, right. okay, but like, can we go for a drive Or like, you got any Coke on you? Or like, it's like, I'll do it. I just like, need to do something else like while i'm doing it and he's i mean fumbling with a cigarette and like getting up and sitting down it's like a really interesting scene of him just like not being able to contain himself and you can feel that and i again i don't know how you would write that but it's it's there and contrasting with this police officer who knows they're not leaving this fucking room uh, is very powerful
0: that's true uh yeah i think that's the line where he like has the gall to ask the cop like do you have any coke and the cop's like no <laughs> And he's like well how about a cup of coffee And 10,000 fucking cigarettes then
1: <laughs> Right and then he really Does smoke approximately that many I can't imagine how many he smoked during that Take or during the takes that they did Of that
0: Ted Levine plays the investigating detective in this Movie which obviously is just a sentence that I love <laughs> I'll watch any movie where Ted Levine plays the chief investigator
1: the script to this movie is funny because like it does a lot of lazy things like has Frankie G and Ted Levine in the car and being like you don't know who Eddie Nash is. Well, buckle up because I about have a monologue about his history over the past 25 years that I'm about to deliver. And then we get into the scene where they have Dylan McDermott at the police station giving his account of the murders and Eddie Nash's name comes up and Ted Levine basically goes, no, 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 no. I already gave a monologue about this two scenes ago. We don't need to reiterate <laughs> who does. this guy is. The audience yeah. is done with this. And I thought that was so like self-aware but also like not, not doing the lazy <laughs> screenwriting thing.
0: I like this movie for the most part. I was frankly surprised by it. I think it has this sort of... While it falls short of that kind of like Pit of your stomach We'll never know true crime ending That makes a movie like Zodiac Probably the best single example of something like this Um, I think it It does Land on that truth of like there's no there is no real real story when you're dealing with people like this. Like there's a moment in the Dylan McDermott story where he's just like, "Yeah, John was saying we should rob Eddie Nash." I figured it was just junk talk, which I thought was both a great useful idiom and also like there's this whole movie is kind of just junk talk, like it's all so compromised. Even when the cops sit down and drink whiskey and like tell their Levine's like, "That's all bullshit. Here's what I think happened." It's just like, "Yeah, you guys are drunk cops with your own biases like we're not gonna get the truth here
1: exactly that's what i thought was so funny in this movie having the scene yes of like these guys doing their quote unquote job were like drinking heavily and right. not like batting an eye that like this is part of their process yes showing that the biases and you know uh sort of conflicted and corrupted ideas are shaping a narrative here that in history like did not come out clean. Right. And the movie's very aware, maybe too aware of like the, like this movie at some points is too much of a a tweet that starts with like, let that sink in kind of thing. (laughs) Like, especially in its reliance on title cards for both the beginning and the end. Right. So, but I think there's a lot of good hang here. I mean, it's not great Boogie good Nights hang. level hang, <laughs> but it's, it's hang that like I think shows Val Kilmer being able to do something interesting.
0: Yeah, it's like drawing out the really, really bad hang of like 1984 Boogie Nights, but you don't get like this 1978 pool party.
1: And that's you, fine with me.
0: You only get people being like, I need more coke, I need more coke. I, I know I did it five minutes ago, but I need more um i mean i think it's cocaine's you, a hell did you of a rate
1: drug it? i didn't i think it's a good good
0: i think it's a good good as well i'm really glad we watched it and i do think if you're like looking for that late entrant into like could kilmer still like work that really special gift he had like here's him working it in an otherwise pretty under the radar movie I think the takeaway with him is so interesting Because, like, he can just do so much stuff That no other actors can do But the trait is that he can't do The really basic stuff that extends careers
1: Yeah, he can't do the leading man thing unless the leading man thing calls for, like, a wildly compromised individual. And it's just (laughs) such a specific role that, like, doesn't come around the same way that the, you know, the saints of the world come around and, like, could really make you a box office star.
0: I don't know. what What is your take on... I've been trying to think all week for the, like, right words of this. He is a deeply, deeply intellectual man who is maybe not that intelligent when it comes to working and maybe especially like when it comes to just basic emotional association.
1: I think he's got a little Jim Morrison in him. I mean, if you hear his memoir or read his memoir too, that he like does not think he needs to follow the rules of conventional society or of Hollywood And I don't think that he thinks of himself as a marginal actor in any, I mean, as far as his IMDB goes, he's been one of the most consistent working actors, you know, over the past 40 years. Mm -hmm. So, but it is sort of strange that, yeah, he like, because of his personality was not able to like be like a Tom Cruise anything but a support to a Tom Cruise type character or type actor.
0: I mean, I I do wish for, if physically possible, like an interesting third or fourth act for him. I mean, he clearly has, his mind works in ways other people's minds don't work. His taste function in ways other people's tastes don't work. Uh, and we wish for him health and maybe more work. It'd be interesting to see him do something else. Yeah. Um,
1: and if you don't have time to read a whole book about his life, there's that great piece um, in the New York Times Magazine, what, three weeks ago or something? Right about, you know, what he's up to now. Um, interesting fellow, interesting body of work, sort of a a renaissance man who happened to find himself at interesting places at interesting times when it came to high Hollywood culture. Um, so yeah, we'll see what he does. We'll see what he does next.
0: And a national leader in YouTube comment sections of people just saying, should have won an Oscar, underrated actor. And if your legacy is that everyone thinks you're underrated, it's not a bad place to be. Do you know Andy Warhol once was asked if he'd
1: like to be mayor, if he was mayor of New York, what he would do? What did he say The first thing I would do, he said, I can't do his voice anymore. He would carpet the streets.
0: Wow. Or was it sidewalks?